Hello, hello, welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina Lay, and today's episode is an extended version of the video that I just posted on Monday on aesthetics. But first, before we get started, I wanted to read an email that I received about last week's episode. So I think this is kind of fun when I post an episode and if people have a particular, you know, if they have a particular opinion and they want to discuss and join the discourse um, to send me an email about it and uh, maybe I can share it out with the rest of the audience to offer a different person's perspective. But Ruby, who is 19, wrote this in to me about uh, baby girlification, which if you skipped last week's episode, shame on you. Um, But I just talked about the whole concept of like calling older men baby girls, Uh, usually like men who are like in their 40s. Baby girls is kind of used as this like adjective. In my opinion, it's not derogatory, but I'll read what Ruby has to say about it. Dear Mina, I've been a fan of your YouTube content for years and have recently started listening to Highbrow. Your discussion on Wednesday of the baby girlification of male celebrities really intrigued me, and I thought I'd try to join the conversation. While I wish I could limit my feelings on the topic to the optimism of those who see it as a step forward in gender inclusivity in popular language, I don't think I can totally agree. I've been on fandom Tumblr pretty consistently for a while, and to me, calling a man baby girl fits into the same comedic niche as calling him your quote, poor little meow meow, (laughs) or claiming that you could, quote, make him worse. They all carry a level of condescension with the mocking tone and assumed power of the speaker expected with the use of a word that has classically been used to refer to actual children. In the NBC article that you link in the show notes, Kendall Roy is described as disparate, depressed, and cringe, and it is framed in a way that implies that he is Twitter's baby girl in spite of these traits. But I don't think that's true. He is baby girl because he's kind of pathetic, because he needs to be protected in some way. As cool as it is to see male celebrities like Jeremy Strong and Pedro Pascal embrace their new distinctly feminine title, it does still carry misogynistic undertones. The vulnerability the NBC article cites as a core of their performances is being framed as an especially feminine attribute. When other surlier men without this distinct vulnerability are called baby girl, the cutesy name is intended to be juxtaposed against their clearly masculine presentation. The idea that these men could be perceived as feminine is the joke, whether or not that is the intention of those using the word. Another thing I think is missing from the conversation around the use of baby girl is that it is a sex thing. Regardless of one's opinions on the increasing visibility of kink in public spaces online, I find it would be hard to deny that the word baby girl has been largely co-opted by the DDLG kink community and other similar spheres. The image that the word's use in this context conjures further characterizes the so-called feminine aspects of their performances and presentation in a way that I don't think is necessarily harmful, but surely isn't a great move forward into the shedding of demeaning stereotypes around emotional vulnerability in a world plagued by toxic masculinity. All in all, I don't have an honest-to-God moral objection to this trend of baby girlification. Sometimes a man is pathetic, but still very sexy, and the best way to describe him is to call him something like baby girl. All I'm trying to get across is that I don't think it's realistic to hope that anyone other than the young woman already using the word online are ever going to pick it up, or that it will have any legitimate impact on the way technically gendered language is used in ostensibly ungendered ways. Any hoodle, I hope this email finds you well and that you have a lovely rest of your weekend. I look forward to your next episode. Best regards, Ruby. Wow, this was a great little essay that Ruby wrote in. I very much see where they're coming from. I think that... Yeah, there is a somewhat like condescending way that a lot of mostly women 
use the term baby girl even though it's not necessarily like a bad thing I don't think it's supposed to be insulting but it is sort of that cutesy way of talking about someone this was actually something that existed in the k-pop fandom a lot i'm and i'm referencing the k-pop fandom because i was in it but i'm sure it existed across other fandoms on tumblr but in k-pop it was like really common for girls and it, it's funny because it was mostly like 15 16 year old girls to discuss these mostly adult men as you know really cute and so baby and like you know demasculinize them in that sense I think there can definitely be some undertones of, you know, um, making fun of femininity in the way that Ruby was talking about. I also think at the same time, the emphasis in the word baby girl is the baby part and not the girl part. Because I think if we were to discuss these um, male characters, for instance, like uh, Kendall Roy in Succession, as a girl um, to highlight these apparent like feminine weaknesses then a lot of people would react pretty negatively to that because it comes across as very uh obviously misogynistic whereas the term baby girl is kind of like oh it's like a little baby and then adding the term girl just kind of makes it cutesier because I actually do talk about it in this episode but I think it just kind of falls under the trend of tagging the word girl onto everything like hot girl summer hot girl walks girl dinner girl blogging by adding the term girl to everything it just kind of like transforms this concept into something more aesthetic and more mood board friendly I'm not saying that the undertones don't exist that Ruby is pointing out because I think you know what they said was like super valid and really put things in a new perspective for the way that I have been thinking about um, baby girlification. But I do think a lot of it is not necessarily focused on the girl aspect of the word and more the baby aspect. And the girl is kind of just added in as part of a trend to make it seem like, you know, more fun. Because I think that's at the end of the day, adding the term girl in to everything kind of lessens the seriousness it's like oh it's just you know girls being girls the girls that get it get it it adds this playfulness aspect to these concepts that I think in a way are poking fun at how people take a lot of concepts extremely seriously especially in like the 2010s everything seemed to be extremely serious but now the kind of humor that Gen Z participates in is like more absurdist and it's more playful and the girl moniker is part of that package, that playful package. At the same time, what I've also been thinking about recently is whether or not the segregation of girl things is serving society or if it's hurting society or, you know, it could be doing a, a good mixture of both because on the one hand, like, I truly love being a girl and I kind of stand by what I said in my last episode of being able to embrace the feminine and really like enjoying it to its maximum capacity without feeling any guilt. At the same time, I can see why some people may be uncomfortable with the separation of things like these are girl movies, these are girl books, these are boy books, and it can feed into these more conservative talking points about gender segregation and can, in the wrong hands, feed into this idea that uh, certain things are designated for women, certain things are designated for men, when we all know that's not true. 
And I'm sure that most of the people who are taking part in this, in this like kind of comedy are liberal. They are, you know, for gender equality. They are for like expanding the gender binary. I think, however, that with a uh, girl internet becoming a more mainstream concept with, you know, like Popeyes introducing the girl dinner, which I'll talk about a little later. But, uh, you know, these corporations kind of jumping on the trend of tagging the word girl onto certain things, it can lead to, um, you know, less progressive people interpreting this as a way to further oppress any person who is not distinctly within that binary as well as oppress like everyone who is because they expect them to adhere to a certain set of like social principles or to like certain things it's kind of like how you know people used to be like barbie is for girls and hot wheels are for boys and now with the movie that's come out and any kind of person criticizing it being viewed as like not one of the girls i do fear that we're kind of entering a little bit of that territory where um if you're somehow not for everything that's considered for girls but you still identify as a girl you're socially ostracized or made fun of um and it feels yeah it just feels a little conservative when you look at everything through that lens um again i think most of the people who are participating it are not like actually terrible people in any way and they're just having fun but you know since we're having this discussion I just thought it would be uh, an interesting point to consider all right but anyway let's get to the to the main bread and butter of the episode thank you so much Ruby for writing in that was so insightful and honestly like I'm just really um thankful that so many people care enough to write these really thought-provoking responses to me even you know I'm not going to share every single answer that I got about people's relationships with aesthetics but I got some really nice really juicy long thick responses and I just know that it it took up a good chunk of your time to write so I really appreciate that thank you okay let's get started by the way, in this episode, I will be including some snippets of my conversation with Evan Collins. Um, if you don't know who Evan Collins is, he is a lead curator for CARI, which is the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute. And if you don't know what CARI is, I highly urge you to look at it on your own time. It's a website. It's a database that catalogs a bunch of consumer aesthetics throughout the 20th century. It's constantly updating and it's just a really cool website. Evan's work is a little bit different in the sense that um, Kari is about consumer aesthetics, which are different from just like fashion aesthetics um, or like the kinds of aesthetics you see on Aesthetics Wiki. With that being said, he's still very knowledgeable, so I wanted to include my interview with him in this episode um, because there is overlap in the way that we respond to aesthetics. But I do think it's important to recognize that they are two different things and I'll let Evan tell you the difference between consumer aesthetics and, you know, the kind of online aesthetics we're used to. Consumer aesthetic is like a style that has lasted long enough to be like co-opted and then appropriated by like various corporations and, and then kind of enters a, the general sort of consumer product or consumer design sphere, which is sort of a little different than like aesthetics wiki. We're not really like associated with them, but I do sort of understand their sort of missions a little bit different in it, how it catalogs 
all of these styles that can kind of emerge from the underground of people just kind of collaborating together. And they're not like, you know, part of a corporation or anything like that. And so Cottagecore like seems like it, it emerged online and initially wasn't really a consumer aesthetic in that sense. But then eventually, you know, it, it did, you know, become a large enough kind of trend that it was then kind of co-opted and then recycled a billion times by like various corporations and then like implemented into brand campaigns or mm-hmm. people's kind of like creative directors and art directors and stuff like that would, would use that influence of that. So that's a bit of a clarification on that. But also I asked for community contributions as well to this episode. So uh, the question that I asked was, have you ever been in an online aesthetic community? What was the appeal of it to you? And if you haven't, what's the reason why you abstained? First, I want to address what is a subculture. Merriam-Webster defines it as an ethnic, regional, economic, or social group exhibiting characteristic patterns of behavior sufficient to distinguish it from others within an embracing culture or society. In fashion, subcultures evolved organically around a shared interest in a style of music, literature, art, or political idea, and usually developed among youth groups. Some 20th century subculture examples include the Bright Young Things from the British interwar period, the 1940s West Coast Hepcat and Pachuco subcultures, 50s and 60s Beatniks, Mods and Rockers, Teddy Boys and Hippies, 70s Punk Rockers, Rude Boys, New Romantics and Hip Hop, 80s Goth and Skate Punk, 90s Emo and Grunge, 2000s Scene and Bohemian Bourgeois, among so many others. As an academic area, subcultural theory was established in the 1920s by sociology professors of the Chicago School who were interested in investigating the occurrence of delinquency or crime. Thus, their research mostly focused on immigrants, black Americans, and the working class. Much of the research was focused on men, no surprise there, but a lot of femme-centric subcultures were not considered threatening or taken seriously enough to be uh, researched by academic and journalistic institutions. Also, the rise of the concept of the teenager coincided with the development and understanding of youth subcultures, and most sources cite the 1920s as the early origin of subcultures as a concept, solidifying and becoming part of cultural conversation in the 1940s through 50s. In the 1940s, the word teenager was used as a marketing term because companies recognized that young people were becoming their own marketing segment that had a lot of spending power, but interests that differentiated them from adults. Then, in the mid-60s, the Birmingham School emerged to analyze the new working-class youth subcultures, such as Tutty Boys, Mods, Skinheads, and Rockers, in post-World War II Britain. They argued that working-class subcultures were evidence of symbolic resistance to the mainstream consumption imperative of capitalism. But, you know, despite these radical beliefs, the actual resistance movement was quite fleeting. To the scholars, resistance was merely symbolic because there were no uh, subcultural career paths that these kids could transition into. And so, I don't know, it kind of like remained stagnant as this movement. It didn't alter the lives of any of these working-class kids um, in any kind of like economic way. This might be true for some subculture members, but NYU professor Gregory Snyder has taken issue with the Birmingham School's theory. He's spent years studying how skate and graffiti subcultures have become self-sustaining and published a book, Skateboarding LA, Inside Professional Street Skateboarding. He likens skate and graffiti culture to being industries and explains how skaters, writers, graffiti artists are able to monetize their alleged deviance while still self-identifying as members of a subculture. 
A lot of subculture styles are resistance styles in the way that they challenge the mainstream. However, nowadays, the mass media and the rise of fast fashion have limited the ability of young people to use their clothes as the tools of a cultural revolution. As Nuria Revuelta writes, the ubiquity and accessibility of clothing have made it more difficult to make a statement with what you wear, and it is only becoming increasingly common for growing cultural movements to find themselves absorbed and monetized by mainstream institutions. Peter Watts wrote in a 2017 feature for Apollo magazine that there have been no unique youth tribes since emo and new rave in the mid-2000s. He writes, There's a sense that this ties in with the rise of the internet, with a more interconnected society removing that need for intensely localized scenes, which often coalesced around a single record or clothes shop or a particular club or band. The wide availability of music allows young people to explore sounds across genres and timeframes, which could also disrupt that need for a tribal identity. Another example of how this digital interconnectedness has led to a mix and match of subcultural elements is through the development of the internet's unique form of speech, which is actually not that unique because it's very much co-opted from AAVE. For example, words like fam were used by inner city black working class youth and yas originated from America's black drag scene. Because these terms have been subsumed into internet speak, they are no longer indicators of a person's socioeconomic background. You could be a white woman from South Carolina and use ballroom lingo just because you watch RuPaul's Drag Race, but not because you're actually part of this uh, subculture. Yomi Adekake talks about this in her article, Has the Internet Killed Subculture for Vogue? She writes, As we try harder than ever to differentiate ourselves from each other, elements of subcultures are increasingly coveted because of their connection to the fringes. Traditional media and corporations are also like always looking for the next cool thing, aka cool hunting which usually means mining ideas from the youth and what they're doing. And the reason? Youth fetishism has been a thing since, like, forever. <laughs> American author Mark Twain noted that life would be infinitely happier if we could only be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. Very Benjamin Button. And going back further, William Shakespeare dubbed old age as a hideous winter, while Homer called it loathsome. Why do we care so much about being young? Well, for women, it's usually because once you surpass the age of 25, you're told you're no longer desirable. But in general, youth as a concept represents freedom, possibility, rebellion, beauty, fitness, and potential. It signifies a lack of responsibility and nonchalance towards consequences. It's also a period of innocence yet to be shattered by the brutal realities of having to actually make a living for yourself and paying taxes. Youth fetishism has also become even more prominent, I feel like, because of TikTok. So TikTok is a platform that's very Gen Z dominated. And it's also like very popular on that platform to dunk on millennials, which has led a lot of members of older generations to either rebel against that and make cringy videos defending their right to wear skinny jeans, or it leads them to... Um, try to replicate Zoomers' behaviors and fashion choices to uh, maintain their own sense of coolness. Adegeki goes on to say, the cycles of niches eventually being subsumed by the mainstream has happened over generations, but the internet has sped this process up at an unrecognizable rate. These days, before a subculture has fully formed, it's already been co-opted. Combined with the rise of sample culture, different cultural touchstones are now a dress-up box for Gen Z. This new mix-and-match approach to fashion and music means we now have trends over tribes. But not everyone believes that subcultures have died off. The Face magazine published an article last year analyzing the different niche youth communities on TikTok. 
TJ Siju wrote for it, rumors of the demise of subcultures are wingingly exaggerated. They're everywhere and you don't even have to look that hard or get off your arse to find them. They're in your very pocket, posting stories on Instagram, selling stuff on Depop, shaking up the TikTok algorithms. And out in the real world, today's youth are occupying spaces of their very own, dressed like they belong to something you wouldn't understand. I think Siju brings up a really good point about the niche cultures that exist all over the internet, all over social media, but I also think it's interesting that there are people who refuse to call these niche communities subcultures. So let's dive into the reasons behind that. This is a written response I received. Personally, as a 25-year-old, in parentheses, zillennial territory, I went through a lot of eras in the 2010s, in parentheses, on Tumblr, of course, where aesthetics were huge. Pastel goth, preppy, indie, alt, hipster, twee, that girl of that time, think Acacia Clark. I feel like it's kind of immature in a way to categorize your style to fit a specific aesthetic. I say immature in a somewhat loving way, literally feels adolescent. I think growing up is realizing personal style rarely falls into a name or aesthetic and the people with the most interesting style just kind of pull from all over the place and rarely fall into the more trendy, micro-trend aesthetic communities that have cropped up over the last couple years. These aesthetics always seem to evolve anyway, and the thing you bought in 2020 to fit the e-girl or cottagecore lifestyle are pretty tired and honestly ugly now. Just feeds into the capitalism of microtrends, IMO. I could see being 13 to 16 again though and wanting to experiment and dabble in these trends. That's what we did back in the day after all. Although all my clothes came from Goodwill when it was actually economical to shop there and online fashion barely existed. Anyways, I digress. XOXO Claire. Hi, Claire. I really like what you said about how a lot of aesthetics feel adolescent because they're kind of created with the intention of being easily switchable, easily changeable, right? There's like less investment needed other than, I guess, financial investment, but you don't have to be initiated in any kind of community. You really just have to like the clothes and like the pictures that are related to the aesthetic. You don't have to like the music. You don't have to go to any particular um, events hosted by the community. It's a really easy lift. Um, And I think because of that, it's really ideal for younger people who are trying to figure out who they are. Um, It just reminds me a lot of like subcultures back when I was a kid kid, like when I was like 10 year olds and younger. Uh, the idea of subcultures was really big, like within the high school setup. So, you know, the, like I think of that Mean Girls um, scene where she's like pointing out, this is where the goth kids sit, like, the, you know, kind of divvying up a school cafeteria based on subcultures, which never existed at my school. I think there were like the theater kids and the band kids, but there weren't that many segmentations people kind of just like hung out with friends but I remember also something that was really big was this idea of being a poser because these actual subcultures like goth and scene and emo they had such a rich history and kind of these rituals that people would have to participate in to really claim to be part of the subculture whereas if you just wore the style without participating with the community you were deemed as a poser which was looked down upon 
And I understand why that gatekeeping existed because, you know, like these communities came up most of the time through political, economic reasons. And so wearing the clothes conveys more meaning and more depth than just, you know, wearing the clothes and not knowing the history. So I understand that. It's kind of like a a respect, a self-preservation reason to gatekeep. But um, I think when you're kids, it's really hard to be able to fully throw yourself into a subculture because you're living under your parents' roofs or at least uh, some adult's roof. Um, You have limited financial means because you can't really work because child labor Um, and your parents are not going to give you money, at least my parents didn't. And for me, I also didn't have a car. I never got like a birthday car that, you know, some people get when they're 16. Um, And so that also was limiting to what kind of events I could go to. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people when they were growing up had these kind of limitations or they just like had really strict parents. So you might end up being a poser, not because you actually want to be a poser, but because you just don't have the means to participate in the community. And that doesn't feel great because everyone was flinging that word around in like the early 2010s and prior, people were just like, you know, you're a poser, you're not like a real blah, 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 blah. But now that word has definitely gone away. And I think with these aesthetics not being rooted so deeply, it allows a lot of young people the capacity to explore in a very freeing way without necessarily being judged for not committing long-term. I mean, so many aesthetics exist purely on the internet, so you could just like make an account that was totally dedicated to being clown core and then in three months just make a different account for something else, you know? Obviously, aesthetics don't solve like the disposable income issue, but I don't think subcultures necessarily did either. I think any kind of fashion does cost money But some are, you know, costlier than others because the punk subculture, for instance, was very DIY and it was very about kind of using what you already had and cutting up clothes and putting safety pins in it just to, you know, generalize to make a point. But yeah, I think that aesthetics can be more freeing. Again, it kind of just depends on the community you find, though. I think that there are always going to be gatekeepers and bullies on the internet and in real life, but... Conceptually, I feel like they could be more liberating than subcultures uh, for young teens and people just trying to figure out themselves. Similar to IRL subcultures, some of the earliest entirely internet-born aesthetics were also driven by a shared passion for music genres, synthwave, nightcore, c-punk, etc., If you're wondering about the core suffix, according to Aesthetics Wiki, the use of core as a suffix comes from the phrase hardcore, a word from the 1930s meaning an irreducible nucleus or residuum, also a stubborn or unyielding minority. In those aesthetics that end in core, the suffix means that the main word is the theme of the entirety of the aesthetic, i.e. all of the images in love core relate to love. Now I just want to talk about a few of the internet aesthetics that, uh, impacted me on my side of the internet growing up. The health goth subculture for starters. This subculture started in 2013 as a Facebook group by Portland-based underground pop duo Magic Fades, Mike Graberick, and Jeremy Scott, alongside artist Chris Cantino. The group posted images of high-tech and exotically specialized sportswear with a sparse palette and other aspects of the so-called net art visual style. 
The creators have stated, we want to create art that references evolution and relate it back to subcultures. Things like bioenhancement, technology, anti-aging medication, and how it all feeds into the idea of pursuing perfection. However, soon enough, the original philosophy behind the aesthetic was co-opted by the fashion industry, reported on by The Guardian, The New York Times, and Mary Claire. I actually came across a cut article back from 2014, and it was actually kind of mind-blowing. Um, in it, the writer quotes the Portland-based artist Wyatt Schaffner. Schaffner said at the time, Health Goth created a proto-narrative of returning to paradise lost by embracing mortality as a one-world consciousness and devotion as means to deliver us from late capitalism. The cut then proceeds to clarify for its readers. At its essence, wearing black but also working out and eating right. It's having an appreciation for both Hot Topic and Equinox. And then suggests that to find Health Goth's IRL, they are probably waiting in line for the Alexander Wang x H&M collab right now. To be honest, the Health Goth manifesto is kind of difficult to understand and I've reread those sections like over and over again and I don't really think I can simplify it in a way that um, rings true to what the creators wanted. But I will say that it's definitely much deeper and more abstract and more political than shopping at Hot Topic and working out at Equinox. And overall, it's just like crazy that a movement and aesthetic, if you will, that started as a critique against capitalism was co-opted into being something that promoted capitalism. And this is not something that is... Uh, unique to health goth like I feel like just in general a lot of internet aesthetics they started out as like organic genuine creative explorations and then were taken by corporations and disseminated to the masses as trends another example is vaporwave Vaporwave aesthetics, um, which include classical sculpture, anime, Fiji bottled water, Arizona iced tea, drug use, vintage advertising, and late 20th century computer hardware graphics, were introduced through music visuals like the album art for the 2011 release Floral Shop by Macintosh Plus or the music video for St. Pepsi's Enjoy Yourself. The first half of the name comes from the term vaporware. Uh, which is a corporate advertising term for products that are advertised for release but are never actually intended to make it to market. For example, in 1993, Apple announced at the company's Macworld event they were developing a phone with Bell South called Walt, short for Wizzy Active Lifestyle Telephone. However, only a few prototypes were produced before the concept was abandoned. The second half of Vaporwave comes from um, Karl Marx, in Marx's Communist Manifesto, he states, all that is solid melts into air. In this passage, Marx uses a sublimation or a waves of vapor metaphor to describe society's change in response to being subjected to capitalism. So it's actually quite political. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know, Karl Marx was uh, very political. As Scott Beauchamp writes for Esquire, the genre's name comes from these failed promises and through its music sort of offers up an alternative history of post-Cold War America. However, despite this, there were a lot of people who participated in the vaporwave aesthetic without having any kind of, like, political affiliations. Honestly, like, when I was on Tumblr in 2014 and when I first discovered vaporwave, I didn't know that there was any anti-capitalist rhetoric going on. I just remember listening to that St. Pepsi remix, thinking the song was, like, super retro, it was a bop, and I thought the graphics were cool, like, using the Greek mythology, but I didn't really think that much deeper into it. And I will say that for Vaporwave, because it's it started or it like included a lot of music from the beginning that 
people kind of were interested in it because they liked the music, not necessarily because they liked everything that was related to the aesthetic. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to say that there were like no true vaporwave artists. I think that through Tumblr, um, mostly and other kinds of social medias, I guess like Facebook, um, Pinterest, <laughs> that, uh, the images were kind of muddled and people just sort of fell into liking this aesthetic without really recognizing what it originated as. So just a theory I have of why Vaporwave took off in the early 2010s. Um, and there's, you know, always a number of reasons, but from what I remember having lived through it, a lot of millennials and older Gen Z were feeling very stressed out by this idea that technology had kind of taken over our worlds within our lifetimes, actually within our childhoods, if you really think about it. And I remember there was this post that was circulating on Tumblr back in like 2012, where the person had talked about the 90s kid and the depression of the 90s kid, because you remember growing up playing with sticks and rocks and, you know, pretend games or whatever with your friends, playing outside, not being attached to technology, but video games and uh, social media and the internet and Google and Facebook, like, these were all introduced to you as you were developing. And so this era of your childhood that was so dependent on real life is so far removed from your life currently now with the introduction of technology that it feels like it's been a really long time since you were a child, even though it may have only been like 10 years. Um, but just the fact that so much technological development has occurred throughout your lifetime, it feels like you've rapidly aged and it's been so long since you were a carefree child. <laughs> So that's the 90s kid dilemma, and I guess some of the early 2000s kids. And because of this depressed feeling that a lot of young adults had about the way their lives have been so technologically imbued, it also made people feel, I think, more nostalgic. And a lot of what Vaporwave is about is nostalgia because it's a lot of remixing these like 80s and 90s songs and graphics. On top of this nostalgia that everyone was kind of feeling in the 2010s, we also had the rise of the SoundCloud rapper and, you know, just the ability of the everyday person to upload music and share their art without having to go through traditional channels of agents and galleries and uh, labels. And actually in this one article that was um, posted back on Medium, <laughs> I don't know if people still post it on Medium, but I was, you know, doing my research and I found this one article that this person wrote and they say the scholar Adam Harper, who says vaporwave artists are mysterious and often unnamed organizations that hide behind the internet and it's behind a fictitious company name or web facade and often the music is through Mediafire, Last.fm, SoundCloud or Bandcamp. So I think with these kinds of like you know, social landscapes and internet social conditions, it made sense why Vaporwave took off. And, you know, this is, this should not be surprising to anyone that social conditions lead to movements because it's something that I cover on my channel pretty often. But I wanted to share like a little story on um, 
one of the aesthetics that Evan and I talked about in our conversation. And he calls it Global Village Coffee House, which I had no idea what that was before our conversation, but it was big during the late 1980s up till the mid 1990s. So it was pretty short lived. I guess not short in today's standards, short for like 20th century standards. And if you haven't heard of it, I'll read a little Kari sample so that uh, we're all on the same page, but common motifs of the Global Village Coffeehouse aesthetic include woodcuts, tribal slash ancient imagery and iconography, moons, suns, spirals, hands, eyes, stars, simple style flowing slash curvy figures, aroma swirls, coffee cups, natural elements like trees, waves, landscapes, earth tones, hand-drawn look, airbrush, dirty look, the earth slash globe, hearts, colorful, gradated backgrounds, rough irregular borders and lines, overlaps with pop surrealism from the same time period, though GB C is usually trying to convey sincerity as much as it is needed to sell something sort of faux naive down to earth warm and you know if you're a more visual person uh there is a gallery on the website of pictures that exemplify the global village coffee house aesthetic so now i'm gonna play the clip do you feel like that's the case with every aesthetic that you find like everything kind of has a political root or are there some that just like come out of the ether for like non-serious reasons I don't know yeah I mean it's tough to say that I guess all of them have like I mean it's like everything is politics I don't know like I don't know like there is like definitely there's always like some sort of cultural social context to a lot of these things or especially obviously like economic context we've seen plenty of them that do have a sort of political like they existed in reaction to something kind of a political climate shift or something like that like Global Village is a great example of that. Like the transition between different time periods and, and political climates, I think we've kind of noticed that it does have an effect on the general sort of aesthetic zeitgeist of what's going on. I mean, for example, you know, like Y2K to McBling, like that transition does seem to have some sort of like ties to Y2K, which is like super kind of optimistic, like we're all going to be like a connected world and everything's going to be like totally yeah. fine, like peaceful. And then, you know, various events happen, like, you know, political and economic events, like the dot-com bubble crashes and like 9-11 happens and like Iraq war and everything. Those political sort of contexts do then influence like what people are interested in and how corporations then would like kind of shift over because like McBling is like much more, you know, aspirational luxury, like a little bit like hedonistic kind of nihilistic. It's like, we've given up on the like utopia thing. Let's just have fun and like have excess and like McMansions and Hummers and stuff. But <laughs> I think there's aspects of that, that, you know, like overall climates and like cultural climates. So if you're not really sure what McBling is, it's that kind of like early 2000s velour tracksuit, Motorola cell phones, um, bedazzled streetwear, uh, blinged out accessories, like that era, that's McBling. But nowadays people kind of throw it in with the Y2K label, whereas um, the initial Y2K is describing a more futuristic, uh, technological aesthetic, which is what Evan's talking about when we talk about Y2K versus McBling. So that's just like some context. But McBling is an aesthetic that uh, started out within the black community, specifically the black hip hop community. And you can see artists like Missy Elliott and Eve and LL Cool J repping that kind of style. But McBling really only became popular and I feel like arguably is known today by the mainstream as being associated with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, who are these rich white women. 
While I wouldn't say McBling had a particular political agenda, it was political because of the climate that it arose from, which I haven't talked about. But now I want to talk about an online aesthetic that came in the 2010s that was specifically political. It had a political agenda and that political agenda got muddled and co-opted by uh, white girls on Tumblr. And the aesthetic is called the Art Ho aesthetic. Art Ho was an internet-born aesthetic from the mid-2010s invented on Tumblr by the users Mars and Jam. The term art ho was chosen as a form of like reclamation, uh, taking an offensive term and putting a positive spin on it for people who identify themselves as such. Jam elaborated in a Tumblr post stating that the art ho movement is all about true creative freedom for people of color, especially black women. As an aesthetic with a well-documented inception in creators, the visuals, which include mustard yellow, stripes, impressionist paintings, plants, overalls, and mom jeans, and its message, which was uplifting young women of color through collage-style insertion into art made by old white men, were clearly outlined from the start. But the look was soon copied and appropriated both online and by major retailers. Mars explained what happened. It was getting co-opted by this little group of skinny, frail white girls. To belong in their group, you had to have a $100 backpack, a $20 Japanese sketchbook, shit like that. When that came to my attention, we started to fight back and identify as a movement. So... A lot of people, I think with these early online internet aesthetics, they might consider them subcultures because they did have like deeper meanings before they were kind of like co-opted by the internet. But what is the difference between a subculture and aesthetic? I think that's something we definitely have to address. And TJ Siju seems to imply that they are one and the same. But the difference between a subculture and an aesthetic is that, as Louisa Rogers wrote on her blog, online aesthetics have little cohesion beyond a loose look and feel, i.e. no physical locales to meet up in, no uniform musical taste, no unifying political ideology or worldview. Their power and influence is as fleeting as the content they beam out to us. But ultimately, I think the major issue is that a lot of online aesthetics grow in tandem with being commodified. Like if you take a look at punk which is clearly a subculture, it developed on its own first before it became commodified by corporations. But with a lot of today's internet aesthetics like Mermaid Core and Tomato Girl, they are introduced as they are still being developed um, because trend reporters are rushing to be the first people to cover them. And yeah, essentially these aesthetics develop alongside industries, alongside markets, which are trying to profit from them. They are sold to us as existing communities, even when they're not. As Terry Wynn writes for Vox, trends are the illusion of a trend, benefit the fast fashion companies, and direct-to-consumer brands making products that aesthetically align with such fleeting fancies. They can also often act as major sponsors and advertisers for content creators and publications. If you look at any fashion magazine online that is covering a trend, usually there's a section in the article on how to shop the look. Another theory of why subcultures have died is relating to the idea that the monoculture has died. Kyle Cheka wrote for Vox in 2019 about the death of the monoculture that I thought um, was a really interesting read, and I think you should all read it if you have the time, but monoculture refers to the omnipresent mass entertainment products like Marvel, Game of Thrones, etc., Cheka hypothesizes then rather than having like one large mainstream monoculture in existence, algorithms have fragmented online spaces into taste communities. 
For example, my TikTok algorithm may lead me to believe that everyone's watching the same TV show, everyone's listening to the same music, everyone's wearing the same things. And so I misguidedly accept what I see on that platform as being the mainstream. But someone else's TikTok algorithm could show them completely different things that they accept as their mainstream. But my mainstream and their mainstream are two different things and therefore are not the objective mainstream. <laughs> the results are, as Anna Angelic, a brand executive who writes about the sociology of business says, you have so many taste communities, but they don't exist in opposition to anything. Culture has decentralized. The center, the mainstream has disappeared. As a result, I don't think that a lot of Zoomers feel the need to be in a subculture in the same way that older generations have had felt the need to before. Adageki noted, for Gen Z, shaving your head and piercing your eyebrow is probably less rebellious than when your dad did it in the 80s. And as Ayesha Siddiqui wrote in a newsletter post, Gen Z is better able to treat culture as a playground with less self-conscious dissonance because it's not as central to their identity formation as it was for millennials. For them, digital is the mainstream, and it's disposable. Being alternative doesn't have the same currency since it's an identity accessible to anyone. Also, I do want to recognize that a lot of the times when I'm speaking about the mainstream culture, I'm talking about the mainstream Western culture or the mainstream American culture, more even more specifically. However, I will say that because of globalization and social media and technology, there are way less cultural fragmentations across countries as there used to be. And I talked about this even in my wedding dress video um, very briefly about how uh, the white wedding, which is a Western British American type of concept has, you know, spread to countries in Asia and countries in Africa. And this is another interesting conversation I had with Evan about Genericana. Well, it started with the conversation of Genericana, which is this uh, design aesthetic that originated mid-1980s and continued until early 2010s. And it was a lot of like 1920s to 1950s packaging and references to American vernacular with a lot of negative space. So if you think about the Prairie uh, branding, the alcoholic brand Prairie, that's a very good example of uh, Genericana. But, you know, we were largely talking about the exportation of what is considered an American aesthetic out into different countries, usually by corporations. So let me play the clip. Like relating it to one that I remember, there was that style in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, where it's like, um, we call it Genericana. It's the ones like so made fun of now. It's like the little like arrow logos and like Edison bulbs and those like really uncomfortable yeah. prayers and like reclaimed wood bars and like the scripty like old West writing, like that stuff. And then like the mustaches and like there was like a whole <laughs> thing around that time with like obsession with mustaches and stuff. Like, I just find that fascinating too, because I mean, it definitely probably popped up in America first. I mean, that just sort of makes sense. And then kind of filtered outwards. And there's some articles that were really interesting about, they call it like airspace or something. And it was just talking about how these styles can emerge in a particular like country. And then it'll just get like transported out to other countries. It's globalization or like even like colonialism stuff, like where it's like, you're kind of like using aesthetics from a certain country and then like applying them to a place where they don't really like make sense. I mean, I just remember 
I was visiting um, Johannesburg, like in South Africa, and they had created like a weird little like transplanted Williamsburg hipster Brooklyn. Oh, what? <laughs> like, into the middle of the city. I'm like, what? wow, what is this? this is like, it had like, it had all the same looks as like the exposed concrete and like hanging plants and like the Edison things. And like, that's what they call like airspace or something is it because it's like the same style that ends up like muting the entire world and like, like covering the entire world in the same like blandification, like that definitely happens a lot where like a certain style will become popular in like maybe the U S or like Europe or something, or, and then it'll just like be transplanted and then like a generic, like this is the hip style or something like that. And mm. it'll just like be used all over the place. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, I mean, I, I have sort of a negative, I guess, opinion on it. Cause it just seems like it's, it's kind of like gentrification on a large scale. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's, it's kind of what it seems like. It does seem like a form of like cultural, like gentrification into other countries and stuff like that. And sort of replacing like what was going on there with this like overall big corporate global style. The reason I wanted to bring this up is while I have no doubt that there are aesthetics that are created within certain countries that are very popular in certain countries that are not Western. But my big concern is that with most of these aesthetics that we know of, they are created by Westerners, usually um, popularized by white Westerners. And even though like we would love to all say that you can be in any kind of aesthetic, no matter what you look like, because that's not what the point is, a lot of these aesthetics that do exist do have this kind of like racist undertone or you know some of the community members quote-unquote community members might be kind of racist um and this is something that a lot of people have written in to me about when it comes to feeling gatekept from participating in a particular aesthetic i'm just going to share this voicemail i got from someone i don't really have anything to add on to it but i think it's really valuable and so yeah i'm just going to play it in your question about belonging to an aesthetic community, what I think of is how I never really belonged to one at all growing up or identified with one because, you know, um, I was a black girl. I also went to a really small private boarding school in high school. So it was so insulated that there wasn't a pressure to sort of belong to a certain group because we were just so small. There wasn't really the possibility to have sort of those like cliques or subgroups to begin with, even though those little friend groups did fall along racial lines a lot of the time. A lot of the time we are also pretty intermingled regardless. Also just dealing with a lot of the sort of pressures and moments of grief I dealt with in high school even, especially with battling with like my own sort of um, unknown mental illness, it was very hard to, like, find that sort of community that specifically I could identify with as a Black girl because those sort of aspects of mental illness and such were portrayed largely by, like, white girls. Like, I was on Tumblr with all the One Direction, Lana Del Rey, Marina the Diamonds, like, those whole eras that, like, define the sad girl Tumblr. And I was a consumer, but I did not identify with it because it was very much centered on skinny white girls. And so, yeah, it was hard. And so I just learned to just go with what I wanted at the end, which I am grateful for because I don't feel that urge or desire to adhere or identify with a certain aesthetic community. But, yeah, it was just I just never found it as 
something I could identify with, just something I could be sort of voyeuristic to. So as I mentioned, I feel like in the last year or last two years, there's been a lot less aesthetic communities popping up um, in the culture. And I feel like a lot of it has to do with the fact that there was such a boom in 2020. I mean, honestly, like 2020 was just like the year of trends. There weren't even just uh, aesthetics that were popping up. There were also these micro trends. Thankfully, I haven't seen many micro trends lately since 2020, 2021. But in 2020, uh, we had the strawberry dress and the hockney dress. And yeah, I just, I don't think there's anything that really rivals that anymore, thank God, because, you know, bad for the environment to have uh, microtrends. At the same time, even though there's not a lot of, like, hype behind specific aesthetics, I don't think our culture has cared less about aesthetics. I think people still like to aestheticize their everyday lives. Um, and I feel like aestheticizing your everyday life is a part of the Zoomer millennial motto to romanticize your life and... Uh, to be the main character of your story. These mottos are probably a response to the turbulent political and social atmosphere of the past few decades, um, or maybe a consequence of being raised by the internet. Though also, they're actively encouraged by coming-of-age films produced by A24 and Pinterest mood boards, which are both popular with Gen Z and millennials. Romanticization is also part of aestheticizing and performing femininity. There are a lot of online aesthetics that partake in this girl naming convention. So for instance, that girl, clean girl, tomato girl, sad girl, is giving one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> More recently, the differentiation between types of girls has grown increasingly specific and abstract. On TikTok, there's been a trend of categorizing girls after fruits and vegetables. Blueberry girls, strawberry girls, onion girls, and the most popular tomato girls, as I mentioned. TikToker Becky O'Connor theorizes the reason is, young people, predominantly girls, are yearning for identity and yearning for community. We're pushed more and more towards buying things and making buying things our identity. These trends predominantly focus around fashion and beauty standards, which are seen as being a feminine, girly thing that you shouldn't ascribe time to. I think also the idea that there's like a girl out there for everyone. There's a type of girl for everyone um, falls under this like personality quiz type of fun that a lot of people like to partake in. Like, I don't know, just like when you do a personality quiz just to find out which Disney princess you are, or what type of pizza you are. Uh, BuzzFeed created an entire like market for this kind of content back in the 2010s. TikToker Nicolette Laframboise has spoken of her support for these little labels. I know there's some controversy about there being too many microaesthetics on TikTok. I love it. I think it's cute. If it makes you feel whimsical and happy to be a tomato girl, then so be it. Beyond just like aesthetic communities, there's also behaviors and concepts that get aestheticized, um, feminized names like hot girl walks and girl dinners. The Dirt newsletter recently released a feature where they bring up the subcultural girl slang origins. They write, Mainstream internet culture funnels its supply of girl slang and irreverent girlhoods from the usual sources, black and queer power users. Their girls that get it and girls that girl refrains are like catnip to grown white women eager to languish in their own girlhoods. Add to this the girl blogger class of meme page admins and internet custodians who have nurtured an ecosystem of hyper-feminine internet-come-retail trends like e-girl, coconut girl, and that girl. And recall the social internet's recent history of female domination and you get girl internet. 
Probably the first girl slang to make it mainstream was the hot girl summer, which was coined by Megan the Stallion. In 2018, Megan explained what being a hot girl meant to her. She wrote, being a hot girl is about being unapologetically you, having fun, being confident, living your truth, being the life of the party, etc. There have been riffs on hot girl summer, like feral girl summer, rat girl summer, corporate girl summer, all of which describe their own unique set of glamorized behaviors for the summer. Feral Girl Summer, which was coined by TikTok creator Molly, is described as a season for raging to house music until 7am, surviving off vodka sodas and waking up in the afternoon to have McDonald's for breakfast. Basically, it's living your best life without giving an iota of thought to the notion of propriety or self-care, a way to make up for lost time during the stultifying days of the pandemic, and a refreshing perspective in an age where picture-perfect green juices and Pilates routines are taking over our FYPs. Hot Girl Walks then rose to prominence on TikTok in 2021. Mia Lind, the TikTok content creator and creator of the Hot Girl Walk, explains, The Hot Girl Walk is a four-mile outdoor walk where you can only think about three things. Things you're grateful for, your goals, and how you want to achieve them, and how hot you are. The mission of the Hot Girl Walk is to continue to unite and empower women through physical and mental wellness that's accessible to all. Getting dressed up and feeling your best is also very much a part of the hot girl walk culture because when you feel great, you stand a little taller. Most recently, we've had the concept of girl dinners going viral. The trend started when Olivia Mayer posted a video on TikTok extolling the virtues of a humble medieval peasant-inspired assemblage that she called girl dinner. According to the New York Times, a girl dinner is akin to an aesthetically pleasing Lunchable, an artfully arranged pile of snacks that, when consumed in high enough volume, constitutes a meal, or so the thinking goes. Typical girl dinners may include some kind of fruit, a block of cheddar, sliced salami, a sleeve of fancy crackers, and a dish of olives. Girl dinner is both chaotic and filling, as one TikTok commenter put it, requiring none of the forethought, cooking, or plating demanded by an actual meal. As another commenter observed, it's a no preparation, just vibes. Mayer explains the origin. I think the concept of girl dinner came to me while I was on a hot girl walk with another female friend of mine. We love eating that way and it feels like such a girl dinner because we do it when our boyfriends aren't around and we don't have to have what's a typical dinner, essentially with a protein and a veggie and a starch. The girl dinner is not without her naysayers with some people criticizing and not TikTok as being like eating disorder behavior because... um, A lot of the girl dinner photos and videos people have been putting out have kind of like mouse-like, rodent-like portion sizes. However, Seema Rao, an art historian in Cleveland, challenges that, saying, The idea of cooking dinner was historically women's work in the home. What I like about girl dinner is it takes away the idea that you have to cook anything. You just literally put it together. So you go from the position where the production of the food is what makes it good and makes you a valid woman to the idea that having food is what makes you a valid woman. As Jessica Roy writes for the New York Times, implicit in girl dinner is the rejection of the picturesque, put-together version of femininity championed by aspirational content, combating the rhetoric of hustle culture and suggesting a declining interest in wellness trends that revolve around the labor of self-optimization. However, in my opinion, like Feral Girl Summer, I think that even though girl dinner is not objectively aesthetic, uh, it's not like a beautiful plate or anything, it's still aestheticizing. Um eating dinner. It's just shifted the standards so that mess is now the aesthetic goal you want to achieve rather than like a perfectly plated dish. 
But don't get me wrong. For the most part, I'm pro-romanticizing your life. Like, I think that sometimes you just need to see the world through rose-colored glasses, right? Um, and if having a girl dinner makes you feel like your charcuterie board of leftover food, snack foods in the refrigerator and pantry um, is something cool and fun to have, then so be it. Like, do that. Enjoy your life. The only thing that I'm a little concerned about is that I think over-categorization can sometimes lead to self-surveillance because suddenly you're like hyper-aware of what you're making and I think that removes like the genuine earnestness that existed before when you were just like throwing shit together on a plate. And if you live your life too like in performance, it can be unhelpful and a little stressful. But maybe the concept of girl dinner will die off quickly now that corporations are taking notes. Popeye started selling its own girl dinner promotion consisting of mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, Cajun fries, coleslaw, biscuits, and red beans with rice. Unlike a traditional combo deal, this promotion consists of side dishes that have to be ordered individually. The special girl dinner tab is only available on Popeye's website, and the price varies depending on how many sides are ordered. Usually internet aesthetics and trends kind of enter cringe territory when corporations start getting involved, but there are some trends, most notably on my algorithm, the blueberry milk nail, that got a ton of backlash right from the start. So if you're not in the loop with all of that, in early June, Dua Lipa shared a photo of herself sporting a light blue manicure. Sabrina Carpenter and Sophia Richie Grange posted shots of themselves wearing similar nail colors as well. Then, someone on TikTok coined the term blueberry milk nails to describe these baby blue manicures. This is not the first time TikTokers have aestheticized a simple beauty trend. Past trends have included glazed donut nails, which is a nude nail with a shimmery coat, and <laughs> naked nails, which are just unmanicured nails. User Caitlin posted a great video unpacking why blueberry milk nails were the ones to spark mass dissatisfaction, though. She argues that because people recognize that renaming light blue as blueberry milk is, as she wrote in her TikTok caption, a dumb marketing trick that's too obvious, it's hard to succumb to the trend. One commenter also suggested that the backlash against blueberry milk nails could be because people don't like the illusion of choice shattering and being confronted with the reality that everything is being sold to you in some way or another. But the question I want to ask now is how many of these trends are like actual trends? Does the regular person outside of TikTok even know what blueberry milk nails are? It goes back to the idea that the internet exists in fragments dictated by algorithms. Blueberry milk nails actually never came up on my algorithms until I started reading about it through traditional media outlets who were reporting it. And then once I was reading about it online, suddenly my algorithm um, put it together that I am interested in blueberry milk nails. And that's when I started seeing it on my For You page. So I think traditional media coverage overblowing the relevance and virality of certain trends actually leads to those trends becoming more viral and more relevant. And this has consequences because, you know, as I've talked about in like other videos, when there's so many trends going on, people like to trend hop and they'll, you know, they'll buy like a ton of stuff to fit into like the tomato girl trend. And then next month when tomato girls are no longer a thing, they'll drop all their stuff at the thrift store and then buy a bunch of new stuff um, for whatever next trend is happening. Like, even with the whole Barbie consumerism, people have talked about how they're seeing, like, Barbie merch in thrift stores already. Already! 
Rebecca Jennings wrote in 2021, virality treats humans like fast fashion, algorithmically generated products to shove onto all of our screens at the same time, on which we then spend enormous sums of money and attention before ending up in the literal and or figurative landfill. It isn't just TikTok, as Shira Ovid points out in the New York Times. Netflix, YouTube, Spotify, Facebook, and many other popular sites operate on similar feedback loops that push more of whatever is being noticed, which is how you get phenomena like sales of chess sets rising 125% after the release of The Queen's Gambit before interest almost immediately plummeted back down to normal levels. We already live in a world where trends are determined by algorithms and we will soon live in a world where even the content is created literally by them. This is a written response I received. Hi, Mina. For a while, I've been part of the dark academia community. I discovered it back in 2018, and I immediately loved the fashion and the themes that were explored. It was mostly on Tumblr and during a time where I struggled with university and especially exams. A big part of dark academia, at least on Tumblr, isn't only the aesthetic part, but also questioning the problematic parts of higher education. It helps me with critically examining the problematic parts of my own studies, as well as recognizing the beauty of higher education and romanticizing it. The latter one led to me enjoying studying more. I actually felt like I was part of a community and it was a lot of fun. I no longer see myself as part of dark academia since I've moved on, but I like to look back on it as a part of my life that turned out to be better than expected. Sadly, the aesthetic itself has some problematic aspects. Mostly white people are featured in pictures and videos, the academic content that is discussed is incredibly Eurocentric, and some people don't seem to understand that criticizing privilege and elitism is inherent in works like The Secret History or Dead Poet Society, and instead repeat the same behavior that I looked down upon in these formative works. As a white European person attending university, the community was very welcoming, but I'm sure that people of color or people who were denied access to higher education could have had different experiences. There are many diverse creators, but sadly, they don't have the same reach as white ones, no matter how beautiful their content is. Love, Josie. Okay, so I too was very into dark academia back um, when I was on Tumblr. I still am technically on Tumblr. I'm just like not as active as I used to be. But when I was in college, so I want to say like 2016, 2017, I was like super into Tumblr and I was like on study blur, which is like the studying part of Tumblr. So people would like upload their um, study notes and, you know, they would look really aesthetic and they would take pictures of their little coffees and kind of aestheticize, romanticize the idea of having to study and take exams and going to classes because I never really liked college to be honest I I didn't feel like I thrived in a college environment and I was kind of just studying something that I wasn't really passionate about because the things that I was really passionate about I couldn't justify spending thousands of dollars on getting a degree in because you know the payoff I didn't really see a payoff um in that sense and being on study blur like i ended up kind of going into the dark academia tumblr sphere but i didn't have a name for it i just followed a lot of blogs that would you know post kafka quotes and greek sculptures and um you know old libraries it was a whole vibe and it made me definitely feel more inspired to study i also discovered the secret history and the song of achilles through these tumblr accounts and I really enjoyed reading them at the time. I haven't reread them, so I don't really know what I would say now. But at the time, I really loved those books. I think actually now, 
I've thought about the Song of Achilles more. I think it's a very beautifully written book. I just am a little uncomfortable by the twinkification of Achilles and um, Patroclus because it's a, if you don't know what the Song of Achilles is, it's a adaptation of the Iliad by Madeline Miller. And it's also like, it's a gay story because a lot of people, including myself, think Achilles and Patroclus were gay, but uh I don't know. It was like a little bit too like 21st century gay, like very soft, call me by your name adjacent that in retrospect didn't really make a lot of sense given the characterizations of these two men in the Iliad. But yeah, you know, that's another that's another conversation. All this is to say, I totally get it, Josie, because I was like the same way. I like dark academia because it allowed me to romanticize my current situation of being in school. And yeah, I did notice a lot of the whiteness too, which did like bother me a little bit, but I don't know. Again, I was on Tumblr. It's a little different from Instagram and TikTok because I feel like on Tumblr, the creators themselves weren't really that popular. It was kind of like they were just like creating mood board content versus on TikTok. It was really disparaging to see, you know, a white content creator who's in this community getting so much bigger and so much more attention than... A person of color who is in the community and creating like you know equally good content and also in their comments you would see like a racist remark so uh yeah that is definitely a disparaging part of these communities i also just wonder how many people in dark academia or who were in dark academia actually went to like an ivy league higher education like uh harvard or you know the British ones like Cambridge and Oxford, which are the schools, the institutions that are really romanticized in dark academia. Yeah, so I wonder how many people actually went to those schools versus how many people like just wished they went to those schools and how many people from those schools would even think dark academia is appealing versus kind of just like a parody or a satire of their school. Um, and maybe they gatekeep in that sense where they're like, oh, well, this is not really the Oxford experience, like blah, blah, blah. Like everyone just wants to be part of Oxford, which, you know, is understandable because they get the most media press and they have beautiful campuses and apparently can get really good jobs from going there. So I definitely felt part of the pull for Jack Academia was for me was that I really wanted to go to an institution like Cambridge, but I knew I never could. And so I kind of lived vicariously through these images. That's kind of all I have to talk about today. Um, but I am interested in how everyone else has like interacted with aesthetics uh, as of late. Because again, I've made so many videos in different like aesthetics that have been cropping up in the culture. And sometimes like I look back and I'm like, was I part of the group of people who are like overhyping this? to be more relevant than it actually was. Like maybe this aesthetic really only existed in my corner of the internet. And then because more and more people were talking about it, it became way bigger than it ever was. At the end of the day, I'm going to read this one quote because while I believe that subcultures and I do believe aesthetics do serve a purpose, a positive purpose for a lot of people, the over-consumerism part, like that's icky, but I think that there are a lot of like online aesthetics that are not just based around consumerism. Like I think um, Cottagecore and Dark Academia, for example, have like a very rich community online that is detached from just overspending. So I think some online aesthetics can be really positive spaces for people to meet people who have the same style as them or who have the same kind of interests as them. 
That being said, I probably don't consider myself part of like any aesthetic group because I don't know. I don't, I don't like to be limited in that way. And I think that fashion and style is so fun to play with. And I think if you claim membership in a type of aesthetic, then there's an expectation that you have to dress in a certain way every day, which for me is it's just not it's just not for me. I think for a lot of 2020 there was this um pressure that you had to participate in some kind of aesthetic. I think that's gone a little bit away. I think people still trend hot, but I think that there was a lot of pressure to belong in some sort of aesthetic community back in 2020 and 2021. And um it goes down to the idea that personal style is not marketable in the same way. I'm going to read this one quote from this Vice article I read. While it may seem that personal style has gone missing in action, perhaps it's worth considering that individual style, no matter how great it might be, might be either too boring to resonate on social media or that it might be too personal to be picked up by the algorithm for thousands to see. That was written by Jose Criales Unzueta. And you know, also something that in my original video, a comment that I got was that subcultures are still alive and yeah, I think I just didn't make it clear when I was talking that subcultures do still exist in the sense that there are still goth subcultures and metal heads, but um, I would say like the idea of a subculture has kind of died in the sense that like no one really talks about new subcultures coming out. Much of the press focus is on aesthetics, but you know, I'm not part of aesthetic and I am part of a subculture kind of like I'm in the vintage subculture. I mean, we kind of just describe ourselves as a community, but it is a bit of a subculture if you really think definitionally about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's really cool because I won't say I'm like a super strict member. Like I have friends of other, uh, subcultures. I have friends who are not in any particular subculture. I don't hang out with a lot of the vintage community members, like consistently. I just kind of show up to a lot of collective events and I'm, I have a good number of friends in them and it's always a good time. It's always a fun time. So yeah. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you all next week. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs) If you want to keep up with the highbrow pod, you can follow the Instagram highbrow.pod. This episode was edited by Sophie Carter. Music is by Olivia Martinez. Cover art is by Lindsay Mintz and highbrow is part of the Audio Boom Network. Thank you.